0: STORY ONE OF SCIENTISTS DO SCIENCE IN SPACE Ed Reed Short Sci-Fi, Volume 7 THE Cyberine BY ROD PHILLIPS, PART 3 Hi, Earl. Earl looked up with a smile. Hello, Basil. How's things going with you and Irene? Basil smiled wryly. Well, at least she's discovered that I'm a pretty fair dancer... "'She envies you. I guess I do, too. You have all the luck. Nonsense. Discovering the right substance was like winning the Irish sweepstakes. That's what I mean. You did nothing more than any of the rest of us. It was pure chance that the right stuff was on a tray given to you to test. But in the history books, your name will get the credit, just like it took brains.' Earl shrugged. "'I'm afraid all our names will be left out. Dr. Glassman will get the credit. He masterminded the whole thing. He deserves the credit, too. The rest of us are just damned good chemists, that's all. He took the risks. If it hadn't paid off, the dome would have been known as Glassman's Folly. Something in that, Basil said. By the way, what have you found out about Nadine? You two seem quite palsy-walsy now. She is what she claims to be, Earl said. Is she? Basil said, his eyes narrowing. I think you're lying. Matter of fact, you're different than you were. What's come over you? Nothing, Basil. "'Nothing,' he says,' Basil said mournfully to the bench he was sitting on. "'What's happened to you? Have you been bought?' "'What do you mean?' "'You know what I mean.' "'Nadine came here under mysterious circumstances, to say the least. "'You were hot on the trail of something. "'You wanted me to help you follow her. "'I couldn't because Irene had given me my first chance to date her. "'So you followed her by yourself. What happened?' "Shaw," sure, Earl said. "'She went to the best hotel in town. "'I called her on a house phone and asked her to have dinner with me. "'She did.' Did she tell you how she happened to be only four inches high and naked when you first met her? Earl stared at Basil in mock astonishment. Basil, he said softly, haven't you ever heard of that terrible scourge of the human race? Alcohol? Don't give me that, Basil said, his nostrils flaring. You were stone sober. I was with you for an hour while you bought those clothes and patiently gathered fashion magazines that would show a dame who didn't know the first thing about it how to put them on, I saw Nadine in this lab being carried off by a man. I was paralysed by a ray gun or something from a gun. So were you. He's right, Earl. Both men turned toward the door. It was Nadine. She closed the door and came into the lab. Maybe we should take him with us, Earl, she said. If we don't, he's going to think the worst things about us. I know we swore you to secrecy, but he could wreck everything. Maybe you're right, Earl said. Who knew, Basil said, heading toward the door. They did something to you, Earl. I'm not going to give them a chance to do the same thing to me. Don't be a fool, Earl said. Let me at least explain things. Nadine was edging toward the door to cut off Basil's escape. He saw this and leaped past her to the door, pulling it open. Come back here and let me explain, Earl heard himself say. You can explain to the Secret Service, Basil said. He shut the door on him. An impulse made him turn toward Dr. Glassman's office. He would tell him first, and if that didn't get results, he would go to the SS boys. He knocked on Glassman's door and pushed it open without waiting for an invitation. "'Dr. Glassman,' he said, quickly, "'something very suspicious is going on around here. I should have told you about it sooner, but I thought Earl would be able to explain his actions and the deans. Have you looked into her credentials? She isn't what she claims. I know, but I don't know how I'm going to prove it right now. She's done something to Earl. He isn't the same. They're in this together.' "'Just a minute, Dr. Nelson,' Glassman cut in. "'Are you trying to say that Dr. Fye and Dr. Holmes are in the same mad scheme to sabotage the brain?' You must be mad. Why, Dr. Fry discovered the chemical we've spent close to a million dollars searching for. I know that, Basil said doggedly, but just the same. You're out of your mind. What are you trying to do, curry favour with me at the expense of innocent and hard-working people? I have a good notion to discharge you on the spot. You've got to listen to get out. I'll hear no more of it. Basil stared at him blankly, then nodded. All right, he said, but you're going to have to listen later. I'm taking it to the Secret Service. They'll have to listen, he backed out, closing the door on Glassman's angry face. When he turned to go down the hall, he saw Earl and Nadine coming toward him. With them was George Ladd, his right hand in his suit coat pocket with something bulging. The paralysis gun, maybe. Basil turned the other way and down another hall, running with a speed born of fear and determination. He knew now he had been right. A door opened. Irene came in, almost bumping into him. "'Where are you going in such a hurry, Basil?' she demanded. "'Can't explain now,' he said. stood in his way. Come with me, he said desperately. I'll explain on the way. Hurry. She nodded. Together they ran down the hall and reached the side exit. Taking Irene's hand, Basil plunged away from the sidewalk through scattered trees until they reached the parking lot. He unlocked his car with shaking fingers and told Irene to get in. He rushed around to the driver's side. The motor caught instantly. He started with a clash of gears. In the rearview mirror he saw George Ladd running toward him, Then he reached the street, and almost immediately was slowed by heavy traffic. Groaning under his breath, he made the best time he could. Irene watched him silently for two blocks. "'Aren't you going to tell me what it is?' she asked abruptly. "'He's after me,' Basil said. "'We've got to get there before he can stop me. You can listen when I tell the Secret Service about it.' Ahead was a traffic jam. Basil turned into a side street where he made better time. It was taking him forever to get there. But finally his destination was just ahead the office building where the SS had its local office. There was a parking space. Basil swerved toward it and braked to a stop. He reached past Irene and opened her door. Get out and run for it, he said. The screech of tires almost drowned his voice. He looked over his shoulder. A car had pulled up beside his in the street. He saw George Ladd behind the wheel, alone. Frantically, Basil pushed Irene out and followed her, taking her hand as they ran toward the building entrance 15 feet away. We've got to make it! he said. We've got to. There was no sound, no light from the weapon George Ladd pointed at them. Basil sprawled forward. Before he hit the sidewalk, flame burst from his hair, his clothing. Irene stopped, forgetting her danger or not knowing it. She bent down by Basil, reaching to help him. She remained in that position for a long second while her hair and clothing burst into flames, then crumpled against him. Horrified pedestrians drew back from the bodies, the stench of seared flesh. In the street, a motor roared into life car with George Ladd sped away. Earl turned away from the window. George Ladd just brought my car back, he said. I guess he isn't coming in. He's walking into the woods toward the tube entrance. Nadine nodded casually. Within his mental prison, Earl worried. What had Ladd done? He wouldn't dare to kill Basil. The worst that could happen would be that Basil would be taken before the Siberian and made him into a mine slave too. There were footsteps in the hall. The door opened. It was Dr. Glassman. lips set in a grim line. Dr. Fry, Glassman said. Basil came to me with a story of something going on he didn't like. He accused you and Dr. Holmes of some scheme to sabotage the brain. That's utter nonsense, Earl heard himself say. Why, I can't understand, Nadine began. I thought so too, Glassman said, until I received a telephone call from the police just now. Basil and Irene were killed a few moments ago, while on their way to try to get the Secret Service to listen to what I refused to hear. Oh, Nadine said without expression. Earl said nothing. He was too stunned to think. I'm going to get to the bottom of this, Glassman went on grimly. You may both consider yourselves relieved of your duties until the Secret Service has investigated thoroughly. Save your explanations until I've called them. Earl tried to warn Glassman he forced his lips open to call to him, and a wave of searing, throbbing pain lashed at him, forcing him back behind the grey fog. Through the mental haze he saw George Ladd in the doorway, a thirty-eight Colt Automatic in his hand, something Glassman would understand. Come with me, Dr. Glassman, Ladd said expressionlessly. When Glassman returned an hour later, to all outward appearances he was unchanged, except that he made no mention of the deaths of Basil and Irene nor did he say anything about suspending Earl and Nadine. From his own experience, Earl knew that one part of Glassman was raging against his mental prison, perhaps feeling the sadistic torture with which the Cyberine kept him chained. By a supreme effort, Earl pulled himself away from thinking about what had happened. It multiplied his determination to free himself enough to defeat the Siberian and destroy it, but raging impotently against the brain's control wouldn't accomplish a thing. Little by little, he whirled himself back to a frame of thought where he could reach out into his conscious mind again, matching his thoughts and moods with it. It had somehow forgotten much of what had happened to Basil and Irene and Glasman. It was thinking about Nadine. Earl thought about her too. She loved him. She didn't know what love was, but it was there, revealed in the brief moment she had been free to express herself. Was that love now making her try to overthrow the slavery of the Siberian? probably not. She was conditioned to accept that inhuman intellect as her master. Earl shoved the real Nadine from his thoughts and dwelt on the Nadine that was manifest. She was easy to love, too, and why not? She was everything that the true Nadine was, except that she was not the complete Nadine. She was falling in love with him, too, and his own conscious mind was in love with her. Why not make the most of it? He inserted the idea into his conscious thoughts, and to his delight no alarm bells rang. The cyberine didn't interfere. Let's go to a dance tonight after work, he said. A dance? I don't know how to dance. I'll teach you. It isn't hard to pick up. All right, Nadine said. Earl worked hard the rest of the day. Tank trucks were bringing the nerve fluid to the dome in a never-ending stream. Every load had to be tested before it was unloaded into the storage tanks to make sure its quality was up to standard one 5,000-gallon load could contaminate it all. At six o'clock, he was relieved of his work. He dressed eagerly, finding no difficulty in meshing 100% with the desires of his conscious mind. He picked up Nadine at her hotel. Crestmount boasted only two places worth going, one was just a dance floor, the other, the barn, with a small orchestra and dinners. The orchestra isn't as good here at the barn, Earl said when they went in, but we can have a table and enjoy ourselves. They ordered their dinner. The orchestra started playing and soon the floor was fairly crowded. Earl took Nadine's hand and led her to the dance floor. After a few steps she discovered that she could dance quite easily and delighted her. They returned to their table finally and ate. Afterward they danced again. Two of the other scientists were there with their partners. He nodded at Earl and Nadine but didn't join them. During all this, Earl was careful not to insert any feeling, any impulse of his own into his conscious mind. What he intended to do must come as a surprise to both Nadine and the Cyberene, and afterwards they must think it to be the product of that conscious mind, not Earl himself. His opportunity arose naturally. While they were dancing, he spoke to her. She lifted her face to smile at him. Swiftly, he kissed her letting his lips linger until the throbbing and an angriness beat into him and a power outside himself pulled him back. He retreated in his mind, afraid even to think, lest the Siberian sense his thoughts and realise what he had been trying. Why did you do that? He heard Nadine say from a great distance, through waves of torture. His own voice replied, that was a kiss. How disgusting, Nadine said. Had she meant that? Or were those just words put in her mouth by the Siberine? It's one of our customs, Earl's voice said. Watch the others on the dance floor. Quick, see that couple over at the corner table? Earl crept cautiously into his conscious mind to watch Nadine. She studied the couple, puzzled. She looked up into his face thoughtfully and began dancing again. Maybe, she said, it won't seem so disgusting if we try it again. Her lips parted. Earl felt his head bend toward her. He felt the kiss, but held himself cautiously alert for the first sign of disapproval from the Siberian. It didn't come. The moment passed. Earl began to relax. Had the Siberian assumed it was a natural action of his conscious mind divorced from him? If so, then a major hurdle had been met successfully. It is rather pleasant, Nadine said, then thoughtfully. So that's a kiss. Earl looked at her sharply. Was it possible that the real Nadine had caused those words to be spoken? Maybe. It provided a new avenue of speculation. Had Nadine long ago discovered what he was so patiently trying now? How to circumvent the control of the Cyberine? She could have, but not seeing any reason to do so, kept her talent hidden. Two more days passed. Earl forgot his caution and boldly cooperated with his conscious mind in the many tasks that took up his time and strangely he was almost free of pain, though it never entirely left. Dr. Glassman took all the scientists with him on a tour of inspection within the brain. The millions of fine glass tubes and hollow bulbs that comprised the brain would soon start being filled with nerve fluid. Although tons of pressure per square inch were required to force it into the tubes, once there, capillary attraction pulled it along. On the first trip, Earl retreated from his conscious mind as much as possible, while still watching everything around him closely. He'd been inside the brain many times before, but never with any thought of discovering a weakness where it could be destroyed. That was the task he'd set himself. It was an almost impossible one. Destroying the brain now, in 1980, might not accomplish its purpose. The damage could be repaired. He thought of dynamite and rejected it. It would deteriorate long before 3042, and even if it remained potent, it would do no more than damage a small part of the brain, not enough to more than partially impair its thinking. I'll give it a case of specialized forgetfulness. A dynamite explosion in such an enormous brain would be equivalent to a blood clot on a human brain. Nothing better presented itself to him on that first trip. Was he going to fail? The next day, pumping the nerve fluid began. The masses of hair-fine glass tubing lost their appearance of glass wool, and began to appear as individual threads of yellowish-orange. It would be many days before the loading, as it was termed, would be completed, but everyone was kept busy watching it and catching broken threads as they started to ooze fluid, sealing them with a special formula sealer. During these days, a dozen plans to destroy the brain occurred to Earl. Each had its defects that would make it fail. As the loading neared its last day, only one possibility remained. Great precautions had been taken to make the brain free from vibration, the slightest sound of almost any frequency, if continued long enough, Would find a nerve strand that would vibrate to it and snap. A loudspeaker broadcasting at full power over the entire range of sound would be more devastating to the brain. A loudspeaker broadcasting at full power over the entire range of sound would be more devastating to the brain than a ton of dynamite exploded in its heart. There was the answer vibration. But once again, there was the problem of installing it, and being able to use it after a thousand years. Install it and use a clock to trigger it. That was one possibility. Clocks run by atomic power would keep accurate time over much longer periods. But there was the problem of getting the Cyberene to agree to the installation of such a device. That was necessary. During the days that Earl had studied the Cyberene's control of his conscious mind, he had found no way to gain any sort of positive control, which the Cyberene couldn't shunt out at once. Therefore, whatever plan he devised must meet with the approval of the cyberine. Tentatively he inserted a bold thought, feeling sure that the cyberine wouldn't attribute it to him, but merely to the logical processes of his conscious mind. What if the brain doesn't develop a long line sympathetic to you? He elaborated upon it, feeling worry thoughts along with it. A second brain might not follow the line of development of the first any more than one human develops like another, even when they are twins. Rather than accomplishing his aim of having a second cyberine on the other earth in 3042, holding the human population in slavery, it might prove a more formidable enemy than the people of that earth. And if that turned out to be the case, wouldn't it be better to have a trump card, some way of destroying the second cyberine at any time, even if it were friendly to the first? It might want to be boss. power of life and death over it would prevent that. Earl's conscious mind, entirely cooperative with the cyberine, soon began to think very dominantly along those lines. Earl sat back and waited for some reaction from the cyberine. It was not long in coming. At five o'clock, Nadine looked him up and informed him that they were to report to the Cyberene at once. I have detected certain thoughts in your mind, the voice of the Cyberine sounded. I would like to hear what you have to say. Earl sensed his mind, rallying its thoughts. I've been wondering what the other Cyberene would be like, that's all. There's no guarantee that it will have any special traits that will make it what you want it to be, and once it's started, it's out of your control, isn't it? That's true. Time travel and even fifth-dimension travel is extremely limited. Once the other cyberine is generated, I can't contact it until 3042. Now. Can you look into your future and see? Unfortunately, no. I can't even see into your tomorrow. I might perhaps jump to the year 4104 A.D., but even that is beyond my present ability and instruments. It may be many centuries before I understand everything about hyperspace. That's what I surmised, Earl heard himself say. He stole a glance at Nadine, who was watching him attentively. That's why I think for your own protection, you should be able to destroy the other cyberine instantly if it isn't what you hope it will be. How? The cyberine's voice was vibrant with eagerness. The basic device would be sound vibrations in the air, inside its brain case. A loud continuous sound of nearly all frequencies would cause billions of nerve strands to vibrate, and enough of them would break to destroy the functioning of the whole. That could be built into it in 1980. The problem is to decide how to trigger it. Do you have any ideas? It's very simple, the cyberian said. It will never forget once it learns something. Before its mind integrates into a self-aware ego, attach a relay to some motor outlets. Decide on some key combination of sounds that might be spoken. Repeat them into the auditory centers of the brain, at the same time tripping the relay. Keep doing that until utterance of the sequence of sounds causes the relay to trip. When that response is automatic, connect the relay to the loudspeaker. Once you have done that, report to me. Then all I need to do is contact the second cyberine in this age, and if I want to destroy it, I can repeat the sounds.' Earl, in his mental cubicle, chuckled. He could not have thought of a better way himself. "'And,' the cyberine said, "'in order to account for your task, you had better sell Glassman on the idea. Tell him it's so that mankind can destroy the brain if necessary.' But make sure no one in 1980 knows the key sounds. You may return to 1980. I've had much the same thought, Victor Glassman said, chewing on his lip. I rather hated to think about it, though. Destroy my creation. Still, I suppose it's wise to be able to. He stood up and came around from behind his desk. Earl and Nadine watched without speaking as he clasped his hands behind his back and went to the window of his office, which brought him a view of part of the giant dome housing the brain. Every precaution is being taken otherwise, until we can be sure of ourselves we don't intend on letting the brain have control of any machines or weapons. Of course, we could forget that danger in time and suddenly wake up to the fact that we were too late. Then it would be nice to still be able to. All right, go ahead, keep it under your hats, though, and when you're done, we can form a select group, handing the... He smiled wily. Password down from generation to generation. I have the plans all drawn up, Earl said. An electrostatic speaker, because it can be built with parts that will last forever, no moving parts in the frequency generator or amplifier, leads to the permanent buses that will supply current for such things as video eyes, and the voice speaker system. Good, good. Only we will indoctrinate that mind early, so that it will never do anything detrimental to us. Of course, Earl soothed. This is only precautionary. Days followed one another swiftly. A factory-made electrostatic loudspeaker arrived and was dismantled so that some of its parts could be replaced with more durable ones. Specifications for the frequency generators and the amplifier were farmed out and the completed units arrived. There was trouble with the relay. It was well designed, but there was doubt whether it would still be in working condition after ten centuries. Earl sent specifications to a jewellery manufacturer in Kansas City and had its moving parts made of synthetic ruby and platinum. The Cyberene watched every step of construction and so did Earl, from within his artificially created mental wall, careful not to reveal the huge holes he had knocked in it. With the arrival of the remade relay, Earl and Nadine entered the brain, setting up a vibration-proof chassis in its innermost heart, where the maze of fine spun glass was now a maze of yellowish threads, containing a fluid with exactly the same properties as human nerve fluid. Outside, swarming over the catwalks and dotting the immense corridor circling the brain, were dozens of technicians and experts, beginning the task of barraging the gigantic man-made brain with a never-ending sequence of visual and audible sensory impressions, which, according to theory, would eventually synthesize that miracle of creation loosely known as thought in the thousands of tons of glass and nerve fluid. Using a portable low-power microscope and the techniques he had acquired during the months of work on the brain and its construction, Earl attached motor buds to randomly chosen nerves and sensory buds to others, attaching them to the transistors that would feed the relay, so that the action of the relay would set up nerve impulses in the brain. When it had been done, he used sensitive detectors to make sure ion currents were generated in the nerves. Where those nerve impulses went to among the billions of brain cells didn't matter. All that matters was that they were somewhere so that the basic property of association would hook them on to the auditory impression created by speaking the code word or sequence of code sounds. What should we use as the code sounds? Nadine asked as her task neared completion. I've been trying to think of something, Earl said. And in his mental prison, Earl had been trying to think of the same thing, keeping track of his conscious mind's thoughts on the subject, even influencing them at times. It would have to be a sequence of sounds that stood no chance whatever of being spoken to the brain during the next thousand years. Otherwise, they might be spoken by chance and the brain destroyed. How about nonsense syllables? Nadine suggested. Earl grinned. Those are the most dangerous of all. Take YMCA. It's the initials of a huge organization. Any nonsense sequence of letters, no matter how long, might someday be the letters of some organization. Nadine frowned in bewilderment. But what else is there? If we take any sequence of sensible words, they might be repeated in reference to something else at any time. Not if they're very special, Earl said, and it was the real Earl Fry, almost completely out of his mental walls and daring discovery recklessly, who was speaking now. An impish light glowed in Nadine's eyes, making Earl almost sure that the real Nadine had sensed long ago what he was doing and had done the same meshing cautiously with her conscious mind till at times, camouflaged by its normal thoughts, she could appear. Kiss me, old fry, she said, lifting her face toward his. The pleasure is all mine, Nadine Holmes, he said, cupping her face in his hands and pressing his lips to hers. And that's what I mean, he murmured through imprisoned lips. No one else through all the ages will say those words, let alone say them in the same way. She drew back, no, she said abruptly. The Cybrine has promised that we can stay in your time, free to do as we please. That would mean that we would have to be in the future, in my time. But only until the Cybrine could make sure, Earl said, glad that she had made that objection. It would allay the Cybrine's suspicions, if it hadn't. A telepathed thought impinged on Earl's mind, and from Nadine's expression, on hers too. Earl is right. I thought of the problem of what the key sound should be. He has hit on the right answer. It must be your voices, filled with emotion, speaking those words you just spoke. Again Earl relaxed with a mental sigh of relief. He had reached his goal. There was nothing more for him to do now, except wait. His conscious mind would carry on the details under the supervision of the cyberine. A microphone was brought into the brain, already attached to the auditory centres of the brain. Earl examined the microphone, then went in search of another type. We must have one with a contact button on it, he explained, so that just the keywords words impinge on the brain when we close the relay manually. At last, everything was ready. Now, Earl said. Nadine lifted her face and closed her eyes. Kiss me, Earl Fry, she said. Earl released the button. That isn't the way, he said. Imagine we are alone in the universe... And we are about to die. Imagine swirling mists about to envelop you and drag you away from me forever, and this is the last kiss you'll ever get. Oh no, Nadine whispered, opening her eyes wide. That must never happen. Cyberine has promised. Close your eyes and imagine it is, Earl said. Close your eyes. Now, there are swirling mists. Your world of dreams has crashed around you. Ahead is destruction. You can't escape it. It's coming closer. You're going to die, but before you do, you want... Kiss me, Earl Fry, Nadine said. That's it, say it again, Earl pressed the mic button. Kiss me, Earl Fry. Earl closed his eyes. It was the end. In another moment, he would die. He had failed. He held this in his mind's eye. With a mixture of sadness and tenderness and bitterness, he said, The pleasure is all mine, Nadine Holmes, and tripped the relay with his fingers. Would it work? After the hundredth try, he began to wonder, but the repeated words with their inflections, the subtle differences in repetition, had to build up in the brain, synthesize, associate with the sensation of the tripping of the relay, and connect. There was as yet no mind functioning in that mass of glass and nerve fluid, no ready-made paths to coordinated concepts, conscious thought. It was the next day before his fingers felt the relay trip of its own accord. Drama, he thought feeling the thrill of that sentient movement. He said nothing to Nadine, not wanting to end their game. And the next time the relay didn't trip. And the next. But the next time it did. And the next. And the next. You're done, Dr. Glassman said, rubbing his hands in great satisfaction. He lowered his voice to a whisper. What is the cold word? Earl winked at Nadine, then looked around in pretence at making sure no one could hear. We picked L-S-M-F-T he whispered. I figured that since a cigarette company had used that in its advertising years ago, it would never be used again by anybody. Excellent, Glassman beamed. Excellent. To think that by uttering those five letters, this entire project, representing millions of dollars before it's a completely integrated mind, can be shattered. He looked around him, exuding a sense of his newly acquired power. And, Earl said ruefully, I guess that winds up everything for me in Project Brain, doesn't it? I hope so. I could use a vacation. Dr. Glassman looked slyly from Earl to Nadine. Are uh, congratulations in order? Earl bent swiftly and whispered in Glassman's ear. I haven't asked her yet. I wanted to wait until our work was over. You know, business before pleasure. Ha ha! Glassman chuckled knowingly, looking at Nadine with an eye know a secret look. You're a man after my own heart, Earl. Then more soberly. Yes, I guess you are due for a vacation. And your consultant duties are finished, Dr. Holmes. I'll miss both of you. Earl and Nadine left Glassman outside the brain and returned to the lab annex. They didn't speak as they walked down the hall to Earl's lab. They stood just inside the door, looking over the scene of machines and instruments and tables and bottles, which had been their surroundings for so long. Earl looked at the lab table where he had first seen Nadine. So many days, it seemed ages ago. He would never see this place again. He entertained no illusions about the future. The Cyberene would never permit them to return to 1980. With heavy feet, he went across the lab to his living quarters. He began packing, and Nadine sat on the arm of a chair, watching. "'What are you doing?' she asked. "'Packing my belongings to take with us,' Earl said. "'Oh, but you don't need to do that. We'll be back in a few hours. A day or two at most. The Cyberene has promised. Just as soon as it makes sure it doesn't need us.' "'Sure,' Earl said. "'But I'll take them just the same.' Then when we come back we can go straight to the airport and catch a plane to Miami or someplace and get married. Fifteen minutes later they left the lab. They walked along the familiar sidewalk to the spot where they always cut through the woods toward the hill, circling it so that no one would know where they had gone. They reached the clearing. A head shimmering in the evening sun was a familiar refractive outline in the atmosphere. There was no breeze to stir the stale leaves. A meadow lark broke the silence with its call and was silent. Over the trees, the giant dome that housed the brain loomed, unbelievable in its enormous bulk. Nadine took his hand and stopped him. Kiss me, or fry, she said, her lips trembling. No look down at her upturned face, did she know? Perhaps the real Nadine within sensed what was to come, or perhaps she didn't. The tom-tom beat of pain began within him. He forced his way through it, taking her into his arms. Pleasure is all mine, Nadine Holmes, he murmured. The lips met, tenderly, then crushed together with the fierceness of passion. The lips parted, lingeringly, regretfully. They drew back to look into each other's eyes for a brief moment. A moment Earl knew the Siberian had given them to make more bitter what was to come. Earl saw the glow fade from Nadine's eyes. As he picked up his suitcases, he heard someone approaching. Victor Glassman joined them, his face grey, his expression wooden. This was it. Glassman might be missed there might be an investigation, but Project Brain would go on regardless of that now, and the only ones who might stop it were here. Side by side they walked toward the barely perceptible refractive shimmer. Beyond it they could see the woodland, a blue jay's flashing wings, a chipmunk standing upright observing them, and then they were standing in the familiar hall in the year 3042. Gerald Ladd was not there, but there was no need for him to be there their bodies, controlled by the mind that enslaved them, walked on toward the far exit and the garden they would cross to the dome, the Cyberene. There was no turning back now, nor would there be other days to perfect the technique of meshing with his mind. Earl reached out into every part of his thoughts, thinking them, identifying himself with them, with the desires of the Cyberene. In that other earth, so close to this, there would now be a second Cyberene. There must be, since nothing stood in the way of its developing throughout the ten centuries and more since they had left it a few minutes ago. They entered the garden and paused. Earl dropped his two suitcases beside the path. He took Nadine's hand in his. They went on toward the portal that led into the dome. They walked down the silent, circling corridor, under the network of catwalks and ladders, past panels of instruments whose needles fluctuated with life, to the red squares over which hung the glass cages, ready to be lowered. Would they be lowered, separating them from each other while they faced the cyberine? The glittering lenses of the two video cameras moved as they went toward them, keeping them in line. All of you occupy one square, the cyberine's voice instructed. They obeyed without sign of emotion. The glass cage was lowered over them. Its front wall became a window through which they were looking at the familiar dome but it was a structure around which weeds grew in thick profusion, with its acres of exposed surface pitted by time, untended. "'What happened?' Earl said. "'Do you mean to say that there is still something to be done?' "'There is nothing to be done,' the cyberine said dully. "'I have checked in another time stream. There is still positive record that the brain was not activated.' "'Maybe it takes time for the momentum of events to force the change,' Earl suggested. "'Didn't the cyberine suspect yet? Didn't it realize? No, the Cybrine said dully. I have failed. More, I have rechecked the mathematical basis of the theoretical picture, and think I know where I erred. The cause of the split that created two Earths, travelling close together down through so many centuries, could not have been something occurring in the original time stream. It took something applied from the fifth dimension, and in the neighbourhood of the split there could only have been one thing, the force with which the time tube hooked onto 1980. It had to be that, the accident I didn't take into account. That's what I thought all along, Earl said quietly. At that instant, the cybern went on as though it hadn't heard him, the split occurred. You became too Earl Fries to mention one facet of the split. One of you went its way, making an accurate report of experiments, creating me eventually. While the cybernene talked, the desolate scene vanished, and the glass cage lifted upward slowly as though it were a curtain, lifting for the final scene. The twin lenses of the cyberine's video eyes were fixed on them, alive with an intelligence that was inhuman. "'No,' Earl said. "'That one of me discovered the identity of the nerve substance, but suppressed it.' "'That couldn't be,' the cyberine objected. "'Nothing appeared in its life to cause it to do that. You were the one who had the data to make such a decision.' "'But I reported accurately,' Earl said. "'Even yet it didn't see.' "'I know,' the cyberine said. "'But it can't be.' because then that electrostatic speaker would be... It stopped. Deep inside of you, Earl continued, waiting only for a wave of emotion blasted into his mind, driving him by its very force into the deep recesses behind his wall of grey, into a cosmos of mind-wrenching pain. No, the thought blasted into him. No human can have the power to destroy me. It can't exist. You can't exist another instant with a danger to me. In agony, Earl reached out, meshing little by little with his conscious mind, feeling its terror and fear of death, calming it, controlling it with all the infinite skill he had learned during the past weeks. And even as he gained control against the will of the Cyberene, he realized with a sinking feeling the essential weakness of his plan. Nadine, He had been criminally stupid, blinded by emotion toward her. She was conditioned from birth to accept the domination of the mind of the Cyberene. Sweating with the terrible effort it took to hold on, he forced his muscles to permit him to turn toward her. His worst fears were realized. She stood there, her face a calm mask that revealed no emotion. Abruptly, the raging force of thought and searing torture from the Cyberene calmed, and its place was cold triumph. So you have been able to defeat me in your own mind, it said. You can make your error in calculation too. Nadine Holmes. She is mine. Nadine Holmes? It was Nadine who uttered the two words, her lips trembling with terrible effort, beads of sweat dotting her smooth forehead. Hope surged into Earl's thoughts. But you can't allow her to live either, can you, he said. In another moment you must destroy us both, so that nothing can ever threaten your existence. We will have only another minute or two before you reach into us, plunging us into the grey swirling mists of death where we will be separated forever. There is no way we can avoid that now, is there? Nadine had turned toward Earl, every muscle of her slim body protesting under the domination of the Cyberene. Earl was forgotten by the brain as it concentrated on the battle against Nadine. She held out her arms, perspiring with the effort. Kiss me, I'll Fry she whispered. A blast of fear flowed into Earl's mind. He fought to the surface of thought, clinging there, calming himself. But defeat was close, impossible to avoid. It had been a wonderful plan to destroy this thing that ruled the minds of men, making them its slaves. Resistance was useless. In another moment he would be dead. Bitterly, hopelessly, with infinite sadness, he said as though somewhere long ago he had repeated it before, a tender ritual whose meaning now escaped him, Pleasure is all mine, Nadine Holmes. Their lips met with a tenderness of farewell. A sound came into being, seeming to come from far away, yet seeming to exist everywhere, with no point of origin. It was, at the same time, a deep rumble and an insane high screaming, and every sound in between that had ever been uttered by voices or machine or unleashed elements in desolate places. It was soulless yet holding within itself the torment of every lost soul since the beginning of time. It forced its way into Earl's consciousness, hung there as though stopped by some hidden barrier, abruptly it swept forward, and as it swept into the farthest reaches of Earl's mind, it washed away throbbing pain, the sense of inescapable doom leaving a sense of freedom, a clean freshness, an emotion of peace a rapid coruscation of words, syllables, and sounds whispered and blasted from the voice box of the cyberine as neural circuits within the brain snapped or short-circuited. Earl and dean lifted their heads in startled surprise and a new awakening. They saw the glittering lens eyes that had been watching them jerk spasmodically. Within the lens of one electronic eye, a flash of blue fire exploded. Then both eyes became motionless, dead, pointed in different directions. Overhead, Giant blinding bolts of unleashed current leaped from copper bars to catwalks. The smell of molten and burning metal filled the air. then as so though cut off by some hidden hand, the unholy sound within the brain stopped. The arcing surges of electric power in the catwalks on power lines overhead stilled. There was silence and motionless clouds of white and gray smoke. It took a moment for Earl to realize that in defeat, he had won. It took another moment for him to realise that it was not he who had won, but Nadine, her love for him, a love that had grown in a girl who had never known that love existed. There was no doubt of it now as he watched the play of expression that crossed her face. Fear, doubt, hope desperate hope, living hope, love, fear, then all the love that had developed within her, shining from her face with the spiritual brilliance of a brilliant sun. Oh! it was a glad cry. She clung to him as though she would never let him go. For that matter she would never need to, he thought, as he drew her closer. They would need each other for the rest of their lives, or for a dozen lifetimes if they could have that many. My God! The words exploded into their minds. They had been uttered by Dr. Glassman, and they contained all the horror, the comprehension of everything that had happened, that the mind enslavement had given to him. It's over now, Earl said. The Cyberene is dead. Glassman shook his head vigorously. It should never have existed in the first place, he said. All my dreams are what it could do to help humanity. We've got to destroy the brain in 1980 before any of this can happen. Earl shook his head, looking at Nadine. Nadine and I are staying here, he said quietly. There's work to do that only we can do. People, their minds freed for the first time, bewildered, needing to be led a little ways into the path of freedom until they can care for themselves, a future to build, from 3042. You can stay if you must, Glassman said, his voice vibrant with the shock and horror of what he had experienced, but I am going back to prevent this 3042 from ever happening. I can do it, I can trip that relay manually. It will destroy, his voice broke. my life's work. But it has to be done. He turned and ran blindly. Earl made no move to stop him. He watched him vanish around the bend of the corridor, waiting fatalistically. Would the scientist be able to wipe out this time stream? Deep within him, Earl felt it couldn't be done. The Cyberne had tried to change the past and failed. Perhaps the cyberene had been wrong in what it believed had caused the split in time that produced two Earths. Maybe one part of Glassman would be unable to bring itself to destroy its creation, the brain. Maybe that's what had happened. Maybe Glassman, torn between two opposed decisions, had been able to act on neither. Earl put his arm around the dean. They walked slowly along the curving corridor, circling the dead brain, going toward the outside. They would have work to do. Work that only they, the coalition of 1980 and 3042, could accomplish together. There were people here in this world of 3042. How many or how few didn't matter. They were the nucleus the beginnings of a future that would grow from 3042. They were the not-born created in the laboratory. They would have to be taught about life and love and other things that free men know.